Good morning, good afternoon, good evening and good night. Pamela R. Haynes here, bringing you the last episode in the current season of the podcast. Special thanks once again to the station managers at East London Radio, Pam Tango Radio, UK246.com and LWR Talk. Vote of thanks to my sponsors, Dalgetty Herbal Teas. Thank you for your support and thank you for your amazing teas. And to you, my beautiful listeners, those of you who have been tuning into the show from the beginning and to our new listeners from around the globe, I appreciate every one of you. If you are a self-published author and you would like to appear on the show, please contact me by email at author to author inquiries at gmail.com. That's author followed by the number two author inquiries at gmail.com. Attach your bio and I will be in touch adding your name to the list of authors for season six and season seven of the podcast. In this week's episode, it was my pleasure to interview a star, Mr. General Paul Levy. We had a natter about his new book, Incredible. Let's sashay into his interview now. See you on the other side. Thank you so much for joining me on the Author to Author podcast. It's great to finally speak to you. What I did while you were away in sunny Brazil was to read your book on Kindle. Yes, so, so for the purpose of this interview, what I wanted to know was, where are you from? Where are you based now? And in terms of your heritage, which place relates to you the most? Okay, well, I'm born in London in the UK, in London, in a place called Harlesden in 1971. I was raised by my mum, not my father, not my, not my biological father, but my mum. She's um, from the islands. I don't know if you know Trinidad and Tobago. That's right. I was going to ask you, have you been before? How do you mean? I've been many times. But you know how it is when you're young. Your mum takes you there every year. So I had to go to Trinidad and Tobago as a, as a youngster, going to the carnivals and stuff like that. What's your fondest memory of travelling to Trinidad? Um, my fondest memory would be um, Queen's Park, Savannah. The, the carnival, you know, that, that's where they kind of centralised the carnival. And also I used to roller skate. I used to really be, when I was young, seven, eight, nine, I used to really be um, into roller skating. When I went to Trinidad with my mum one of the times, I took my skates and I was able to skate all around Trinidad and in the park and stuff. That's one of my um, fondest memories. Also, a fond memory of Trinidad was um, at nighttime, my, my family, we went out and we went fishing. And we made a, I remember we went fishing and we caught a fish and we made a, one of my uncles made a broth, fish broth. But I thought that was amazing, you know, we actually went fishing. All of us went out late night, night, went out and went fishing and we caught the fish and we had that kind of barbecue by the beach. That oh, what a fantastic memory. memory. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I just thought of that, actually. I actually forgot about that. But I remember the broth. It was amazing. Yeah. I think he used the, used the car wheel to make the pot, you know, like, to make the team, to, to, you know, the, like, the, like the grill. You know? It was like, yes. <laughs> it was really homemade, really DIY thing. So you've just come back from Brazil. How was it? And have you been to Brazil before? Yes, I just 
came back from Brazil and um, my, my, my other half, my missus, she's from Brazil. So we've been to Brazil about, we've been together for seven, eight years now. So we've been nearly every year, but uh, I said we've been about five times. I've been about four or five times. But I went before, before I was with her, I went to do shows. So I would say I've been to, and yeah, I've been to Brazil quite a few times, you know, once, once, twice, three, about seven times I've been to Brazil. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. What other exciting places have you travelled to? Uh, obviously, I've been to Jamaica. I like that. <laughs> Jamaica was nice. I like America. I like Cuba. I love Cuba. Very fascinating place. Like you go back into a time machine. You could go back 40 years in Cuba. Bermuda. I've been to um, Japan. I've been to Singapore. I've been to Dubai. Obviously, the whole of Europe, France, Germany. Switzerland, Austria. I've been virtually everywhere. I've been to Iceland. <laughs> I've been to um, Tanzania. I've been to Australia. Australia. Oh, wow. Big fan base in Australia. Quite bizarre how Australia, I know everything was going on in England. It's like they're, they're England's their parent. Um, anything what happens in, in, in England is, is straight to Australia. My brothers live there. They live in Brisbane. Um, So I have yet to go there, but um, I will do one day. But where would you like to go to? Where would I like to go to? I would like to go back into America because I'm banned at the moment. (laughs) Sorry about that. Really? We lose my visa. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. Let's leave that there. Going from Brazil. And what it was, we didn't get a chance to do the paperwork. Uh, I was supposed to get a work permit. Um, But I was actually under an umbrella of a band. But I didn't realise I was actually under that umbrella. I thought I had an individual work permit. So I was in the airport pushing my argument that I'm, I'm General Levy and, and the work permit. They didn't have anything on the on the thing, but I wasn't in communication with the, the band members of a band because I was coming in from Brazil. So I didn't I wasn't briefed properly and I gave the wrong information and I ended up getting deported. Uh, I later on found out that I, that I was actually on a, an umbrella, an umbrella uh, visa of a, of a group, a group visa. I didn't realise that at the time, too late, and I'd been uh, already been deported. Yeah, I'd like to go back in America, America because I like Florida, I like New York, I like Boston, uh, Texas, I'm in Texas as well. So I like oh, that one. I really hope that that happens for you. I've got everything crossed for you. So obviously your your work takes you all over the the world but you're also very busy in the UK as well you know every time I follow you on social media you're you're up the country you're down the country you're across the country do you does the traveling take its toll on you I hate traveling but I like being at the venues I like getting to the place being at the place but the actual process of going through airports and stuff and queues and just just the whole the whole, the whole confusion of the, of the airport really does my head in unless we've got a far, unless, I like to find a fast track a fast track lane. They've got a fast track. I, I can work with that. Yeah, it's, the traveling is 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 a bit 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 of a headache. But it has to be done. It's work. I saw recently that you gave away a copy of your book at one of your gigs. Well, yeah. where was that, and how did that come about? Uh, where was that? That was in uh, Birmingham, and that was um, I was basically doing my show. And I said, if can anybody mimic my style? Because I know my style. Incredible general. So I asked somebody if anybody in the crowd could mimic that style. And then I would give them a copy of my book. And a few people came up. I ain't going to lie. A few of them was, were awful. A few of them were really, I couldn't work with it. But a particular guy, I think his name was Carl. He came through. 
And he did it, man. He was like, he went in, energy, everything, full of energy and everything. So he won it, he won it hands down. And then I went across to the other side of the crowd and there was a, a, a sister, a, a, a black lady, and she was going for it, man. And she didn't really do it that well, but because she 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 tried her hardest and as a sister, and it was like, she was surrounded by real white people and she did it. I hold it, you know what I mean? So you know what, sis, you get it, you get it, you get it, you get it. So I gave the sister a copy of the book as well. And she, she actually came back after and I signed it for her. So um, yeah, so I gave away two copies. That's how it happened. I basically did a competition at my show. One of the last lines of your book, you said that, you know, it's not over yet. You know, there's more to come and, um, yeah. you know, you're going to be happy for the rest of it. So why write a book now and not, say, in, in 10 years' time? Because um, I had the opportunity to write now. I'm in a good space right now with, with the tools. If the tools are there, I was given the opportunity of being introduced to um, Storybook Terrace. They kind of help you to, 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 to get your book together. So once I learned the guidelines of what you need to do to make a book, I thought it's, it's a project. It's something that I, is very, it, it, oh, it was a wonderful thing to do. A great idea. And now, because I'm in a good place, I'm, I really, I think, I've, I, think I've, I think I've been through a few chapters and I've reached to a good place in my career where I can actually look back and say, wow, that was a ride, you know? And there's still more to come, obviously. But um, I would like to do it now so at least if anything happens to me in the future, people have a, a body of work that I've actually told my story because I've seen many artists who have passed away and their story has been told completely different from how they really were. So at least I thought I'd put down a body of work now that if, God forbid, anything happens to me, I've got the first 50 years of my life put down, you know? <laughs> Oh, wow. Is it really 50 years? Of course, 1971. Yes. Yeah, 51. So tell me, were you self-published? Did you have a publisher? And what was that journey like? I was actually self-published. I actually tried to do it with Storybook Terrace. Um, they, they, they gave me a ghostwriter initially, but I wasn't happy with his passion about me. He was taking it for a joke. He was like, I was telling him, I was giving him stuff to write. He was bringing it back in a comedic fashion, like he was taking my life story for a joke. So I said, no, I think I better do this myself because, um, for instance, I would say something like, um, I would say I was on my way to a DJ competition and I was, on the, I was on the bus and I was really apprehensive. I was like really, really nervous. And then when he gets it, he'll send it back saying, oh, I was on my way to a DJ competition sitting on the bus and I was shitting myself. I said, no, 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 no. That's not that. That's a bit, I can't let my daughter read them kind of thing there. You know, I open up the book and see her daddy was on the bus shit. Because, you know, people could take, no, when you're writing the book, I want every word to be precise. I don't talk like that. I don't talk like I'm shitting myself. That's why people talk. I mean, when I really have to say it, like, I was apprehensive. I was nervous. Right. And that's basically what it was. It was an MC competition. So I didn't like the way how he was kind of belittling my argument. And making me look like a, a bit of a comedian, a bit of a clown. I felt like, you know, sitting on the bus shit. And I, said, I just didn't like the way he was articulating my story because I didn't say that. So I said, let me take it back myself. And I rewrit the whole thing myself and let them just um, dot the I's and cross the T's. Yeah, I mean, this way you get to hold the pen. You get to tell your story your way in your own words. I'm looking forward to the audio book as well. When is that likely to come out? Well, anytime I want to, really. Um, I've virtually finished it. I've done about nine chapters. There's 15 chapters. It's all done, but I just need to edit it. I've got it all finished. All 15 chapters are finished, but I need to kind of, there's some some words that I might stammer or I might take a, a breathe. I might take a, a breathing. I'm, I need to edit it, edit edit the, the, the vocal, but it's there. When I go on, when I travel nowadays, like if I'm on a plane, 
I would edit some on the plane because, you know, the plane rides are quite long nowadays. So I use my traveling time instead of being bored on the plane. Like when I went to Brazil, I did quite a lot of editing because it was a nine hour flight. So I did quite a lot of editing. So that's why I did the, the videos in, in Brazil because I, I'd actually done the editing on the plane. So I've done a few, a few more, been a bit lazy, to be honest. Um, but I know it's there. So it's just down to me when I when I want to complete it. It's all done. Just need to edit. So I've edited up to um, up to nine chapters now. So I need to edit another six chapters i can do that anytime i might even do it i'm going to amsterdam on the weekend i might do it on the plane i think i will yeah on the plane i'll do it on the plane edit maybe two chapters on the plane it's a double treat not only to hear the story but to hear from the author how the author intended as well so i look forward to look forward to that and i wouldn't call you lazy at all you know you, you know you sound like you're doing more than one thing all the time yeah. but yeah you need that quiet space don't you to do something like editing to make sure it's done properly sometimes you've got bored times like when you're on a plane but quite boring so i find that anytime i'm bored nowadays hey let me edit my book if i'm waiting for something anywhere i am nowadays that fills up my time if I'm in a doctor's waiting area or I'm in, I don't really go to doctors, but if I'm anywhere, if I'm waiting for my daughter to come out of school or I'm she doing our ballet, I might do a bit of editing while I'm there. So it's kind of like, it fills up my gaps, this book. It's kind of, yeah, it fills up my gaps. Well, one thing I really liked about the book is that you finally get to set the records straight. Not that I was really aware of all what was happening in behind the scenes, people cancelling you, people angry and cross about a comment that you were alleged to have said and everything else. Was totally unaware of that because in the meantime, your fans are just enjoying the music. You know, that's all they're they're really concerned about but during that time how important was your faith to you in terms of supporting you through all of those challenges it took me closer to god because i tell you about something when when you go through this kind of a backlash over a statement you're, you're, you're supposed to have made what surprised me the most was how many people were glad that i was going through this backlash people that i thought would support me people who i thought would say oh this is ridiculous uh, who would I get support from? A few DJ rap, a, a, a DJ called DJ Rap, Elaine, DJ Elaine. A few female DJs yeah. uh, defended me, and a few people, David Rodigan defended me. And I mean, publicly, not on the phone. I was quite uh, disappointed in how many people really did, really, really, really didn't. That, that I think God made me go through that to realize that you know, it's, it's, it's you've got to, you've really got to be independent. You can't rely on people, even when you're being vilified or being uh, misquoted, I found that basically what it what I, what I figured out was that I was a strong artist and with me out the way would make it easier for a lot of other artists, a lot of other producers, a lot of other people. I was a problem. So when I got this controversy, it was like two birds in one, one stone, two birds for, for a lot of people. I wouldn't say, you know, it wasn't in my face, but it's just the way how some people were able to just disrespect me in public and get away with it. And, and my people who I know could have defended me or, or, or could have because he, the street credibility is very important and I've always been a kind of person who values my street credibility and um it was tested a lot through that time you know people were just making were just coming at me and because I was a reggae man and I wasn't really into jungle I wasn't feeling a lot of the most of the backlash I didn't really some of the deeders around that were cussing me but I didn't even know who they were. Basically, for lack of a better word, some little man to me, some little man that accosted me. I mean, I even know, I don't, you know, if it wasn't no man in the reggae team, sax and that, cuts and that, right? I mean, I really care about no little jungle man. They can say whatever they want. But after a while, it began to kind of affect bookings where I wasn't getting bookings after a while. It began to affect the pocket and it affected my, my, my relationships too. I had a 
I had a relationship. I split up with my girlfriend basically over that the whole controversy. Um, she couldn't really, she couldn't take it. She couldn't. She said she she didn't she didn't sign up for this for this <laughs> to be with a brother who everyone everybody hates. You know, what I mean? <laughs> she she really you know she 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 uh, didn't sign up for that. She signed up for the good time, having a good time. Next minute, everybody's saying, oh, he said this, he said that. I'm not working with him. And she was getting it from her friends. Her friends saying, why did he say it? Tell him to apologize. What's wrong with him? They're blowing this thing. I'm supposed to have said that I, I'm, I'm the king of the jungle and I, I'm supposed to have said that I created jungle, which is a ridiculous thing. I don't produce. So it was it was something that was just taken out of out of context and totally turned around. And a lot of people knew it was rubbish because there's two things about this. When you're a sound man, there ain't nothing wrong with saying, yo, we're the best. We run things. That's a normal thing in sound system culture. We are the best, but we had it done. We, we run the place. It's no okay, me too. Everybody say, yeah, yeah, me too. You know what I mean? It's no problem. That's what, I'm coming from that kind of culture, all right? And also, I said it in front of 2,000 people, which was like I was saying, we created this music. It's a UK thing. We've pushed this energy to become a great, great thing. But when you read it in a magazine, it's like I'm saying it to myself, I'm saying it to one person. I create, you know, it's, they turned the, the we to I. And, it, and that's where it kind of got twisted. So... And, and, and a lot of people took that as an opportunity to, to, to kind of bring me down, even if it wasn't true. It was like a way of getting me out. I, I was going very well at the time. I had a good profile. I had a record recording deal. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful people around me. And I was, I was doing well. And, and obviously, I was, I was a bit hype. I was, a bit, I was very excited. I was very hype at that time. You know, I, I must admit. But I think that that statement was totally taken out of context because I, I don't really speak like that. Me are the best. I me are the done. Only thing I've ever said is I'm incredible. Incredible. You know what I mean? In a song format. And ain't nothing wrong with that. You know what I mean? But I would never really sit down with somebody and say, hey, I'm the king and I'm the best and I'm me run this. I'm, I, I can't. That's not my style. I prefer to just do my work and let the people be the judge of my process. You know what I mean? So totally taken out of context. And it was uh, God making, God made me go through that for a good reason because he wanted me to see what life really was because I was in a bubble at that time. I was making money. I'd build people around me, and I, and I hadn't really faced any 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 kind of a harsh harshities really on the mainstream. And I think that uh, when I went through that, uh, getting cancelled, uh, losing a lot of people around me, realizing who my real friends were, who was happy that I was going through this, who was really sad for me, it made me see what life is really about and what human nature. Because some people were scared to support me. It wasn't because they didn't like me, but because they didn't want to say anything which would affect their run-ins. I realised how scared people get. I could, I could understand what Kanye West is going through. People want to support Kanye, but they can't because if they say anything for, for him, they, they lose their job. The people stay like this. And this is what happened to me. Uh, years, I was going through so much. 10, 15 years, I, wasn't, I, was, I was had to go to Europe, but... In going to Europe, I, I, I made new friends who were in, interested in this stupid argument. They wanted to hear good music and see good artists. And that's what I was. So I spent 10, 15 years building up a big rapport in Europe, France, Germany. Basically, that whole controversy made me into an international superstar. They pushed me out into Europe because if I stayed in England, I would have just been doing England, getting my money up West End, Birmingham, Manchester for 15, 20. And, I wouldn't, and when, when they're ready to drop you, you would have no backbone. But now, if I have no shows in the UK, I can go Europe for a year and tour easily. I can go France for three months, go Germany for three months, go Italy, go Austria, 
Japan, I have the whole I fan base, Israel I fan base all over the place. So which is which is basically to distinguish me from a lot of other artists, you know. And that and it's because of that song. Absolutely. I mean, there are so many highlights that um, it will probably take another interview to go through with you. But to think that you almost didn't stick to your dream, because when, from what I've read, you were training at one point to be a, a legal executive. That just oh, feels so you. alien to the person that you actually became. <laughs> wow. You've read my book. You really have. It, yes, I have and thoroughly enjoyed it. I was doing a, a, a working for a, a solicitor's in St. John's Wood, J.M. Friedman. And I was, because what it was is that um, when I left school, everybody just thought, wow, what, what am I going to do kind of stuff, you know? And I, and I wanted to do music, but I knew that there wasn't really much support really from, the, from my mum, because, you know, your mum wouldn't really think it's going to really go that far. So mm -hmm. I said, in the meantime, I'm going to do something in the meantime, just to show you that I'm not, I mean, I'm not whatless. So I, I went to the job centre, and I picked a really good job as an outlaw clerk. And basically I went for the interview and I winged it. I winged the interview. I went into the interview, put on my best attire, best P's and Q's on that day. And um, I got the job. The, the, the lady liked me and her husband, was his name was Jeremy, Jeremy Friedman. He liked me as well. And they had a few other people working in there. There's a small office in St. John's Wood. And they gave me the job as an outdoor clerk, delivering affidavits and doing litigation. So if anybody had a, a, a case going on, I would be the one that would take the, uh, the paperwork from the solicitors to the Royal Courts of Justice and push through the, uh, the, 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 uh, the paperwork. I'd be like the, the witness and stuff. So that's what I was doing for like for about three months. Uh, and then um, they wanted me to start coming in on Saturdays, Saturday mornings. And that's where the problem arose because Friday nights was my time. You know, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm really young, 17, 18, 19 these times. So I'm in my late teens. So definitely Friday night's important to me. So I, uh, I, had, to, I had to really just, uh, I had to leave the job because I couldn't come in on the afternoons. And it, it was going to become a problem with them because they wanted me to come in and I was saying, I, I can't do it. And it, so it became kind of funny vibe in the air. So I just, I just left. And, and when I left that job, I'd actually had, I'd been recording, I think my, my first uh, hit track Heat had just come out or was about to come out. So I was um, hoping that, you know, when I leave this job now, I'm going to have a hit song and I'm not going to have to look back. And that's basically when I left that job, I, I, I never looked back on 9 to 5, went fully into the music 24-7. Uh, yeah. Wow. Well, and you mean you've had such an incredible um, career reaching number eight in the national charts and being on top of the pops as well. The very first um, junglist artist to be on top of the pops. And I remember that then when it came out and I, I also watched it again last night on YouTube. Does that feel surreal that that happened? Yeah. I mean, funny thing about it is the top of the pops thing occurred when I was actually, I, I, I was in Germany or something, I was doing a come up a tour or something. And I was really tired mashup so you would think that when you're doing top of the pops you can be on, on your peak of fitness and voice everything was there but i was actually really tired and mashed up i'd been on the road for like two weeks and then we got the call we've got to come in the track is is it's hit the charts so i did top of the pops for me it was it was a landmark it was it was a sign to me because top of the pops was the program that i grew up watching and anybody that i saw on top of the 
Pops was now an official star in my mind. Once you got Top of the, you know, you know, it was in, in, you know, it was Top of the Pops was like every week we watched that religiously. So to be actually on Top of the Pops, it, it's never been the same since in my mind. It really sealed something in my mind. Top of the Pops was was important for me. You know, I know it's a pop program. It's not really rag or dance or a jungle, but as a statement, because when I was coming up, a lot of people didn't believe in, in believe in me, even in my own community with people around me and stuff. So to get the official co-sign from BBC Top of the Pops meant that certain people couldn't chat to me again. <laughs> they couldn't come with that, couldn't make me feel that nothing ain't going on for me again. I've done Top of the Pops and I needed that kind of co-sign because at that time there was lots of mind games going on. You know, I mean, you need that kind of official official stamp to say you, you've arrived. Because otherwise you could, you, otherwise you could be in, in, on the high street in Harsden and people will still say, Oh, what's your name again? Oh, sweetie Irie. What's your name again? You know, the little mind games they do, you know, this kind of stuff. Make you say, wait, wait, I've been doing this for so long and you still don't know my name. So when you get top of the pops, it shuts up all that kind of rubbish there. You can say, okay, I know what you're doing. All right, all right, yeah. So this is what you, so that, that's what you've done for me. So I needed that um, established official call sign. And also I got to meet Mariah Carey backstage. She was lovely, Mar Mariah Carey. And also I got to... Uh, if I can say, I got to smoke a split with Sinead O'Connor. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. I mean, by far for me, um, for reading the book, it also felt like another milestone to meet Buju Banton oh, wow. and for him to give you a compliment, you know, yeah. on the jewellery that you were wearing, your ring that you were wearing. It must feel, you know, that he's one of the people that I would really like to see in person. This is good, man, because this is real, this is real things that happened to me. And it's like, I was in Jamaica, and we were in Penthouse Studios, Slack Road, and we were waiting for the engineer to come. And, you know, there's, there's this tall, skinny guy there waiting as well, you know? And I said, wait, wait, that's Buju. And I said, yeah, that's Buju Banton. I said, what do you mean, that's Buju Banton? Imagine that, you know what I mean? So we're there now, me, Robbo, and Junior Dan. We're chatting with this free talking, everything blessed. And I'm, I'm set that I, I had a ring. My ring had, a, it, was a, it was a pound sign in gold. In, in those days, used to wear big sovereigns and stuff. And I had, a, I, had a, I had a kind of sovereign with a pound sign shape around the sovereign. So you got a sovereign and then you got the pound shape. My, my, my baby mother did buy it for me, Michelle. So I had, I was wearing that ring, you know, and he said to me, what? I love that ring there. Oh, where you get that ring there? I said, yeah, man, would you, man? This is nothing. When you come to Europe and England, you're going to have this all over your hand and more. And he just said, yo, he loved, loved that talk there, you know? And it was just the fact of meeting him and seeing him perform live at Prison Oval. It was just like, and you know, hearing all the tunes that I love playing on my on my tape and hearing on the radio and just to see these guys do it live. It just that, that, that Jamaica experience was definitely a, a, a turning point for me because I had to go to the, the heart of the matter because I grew up in London and stuff. And even though I'm, I'm Trini um, I'm heritage, but I had um, like my, 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 my stepfather, or my, oh, I call him dad, I didn't call him stepfather, he was so close, my dad. Not my biological dad, but he was a Jamaican. So I always wanted to kind of um, go to where he came from because he fascinated me. He was such a cool, calm, his meds, the way he used to kind of be, he was an extended family. And he was he was always like a a, a wise man in our family. And he, he, he particularly looked after me. So I always had a, I always loved him and I loved, so that made me fall in love with Jamaica as well. You know what I mean? Because I want to know where this man come from and and the way how he, you know, how, how he's, his, his, his view on the world. When I got into reggae and I thought, yo, he's going to love this. And I said, yo, we think Bob Marley thing and really, he was like, well, I'm not really in a Bob Marley, you know. 
it was Tim Reeves and I come from, you know, and Pat Stamina, you know. He was a real elder, you know. It was like, Tim, Pop Marley was a pop star. He just come the other day. And it was like, to me, Pop Marley was the main thing. So that, so even though he was a Jamaican, he wasn't coming for, coming with this Dennis Brown and Gregory Isaacs vibe. It was really an old school. We used to play Fats Domino and all this kind of stuff. And you know what I mean? In the house and, and still have the reggae as well because my mom's West Indian and my brother, who's older than me, he's a, he was a kind of Rasta, Rasta Fearing from early. So he was really into the team from early. So we used to get the, the dance, the dance alkias at the Shakas, them, the Kilimanjaro's, the Stereo Mars. Our house was full of different kinds of music. So for me to go to Jamaica and be in the foundation places where it, where it all come from, see, see places like Halfway Tree, and I heard these names on the tapes, yes. you know what I mean? Jungle, Rima, Tivoli Garden, you know what I mean? I'm like, wow, that's Tivoli Garden, you know? That's Alman Town. I heard some guy mention that one time. Oh, we're in St. Elizabeth now, we're in Junction, we're in, we're in Cross, you know what I mean? And these places, I was like, wow, I've heard of all House of Leo. I've heard of this place. How I'm actually in House of Leo now. Proper clubs, a skate land, I went skate land and cinema too. And these are places that we heard on, on tapes. So to actually be there in the actual country where it all come from was definitely spiritual, like a spiritual um, journey for me personally. Absolutely, can certainly relate to that. It feels as though wherever you are from the Caribbean, that when you go to Jamaica, it's like you're going home. And the the welcome that you know that we received from from you know local people, um, it was just beautiful. It's overwhelming. You see the Jamaicans that come to to England. They're not the, the right ones. The, the real Jamaicans stay in Jamaica. I'm sorry, no disrespect. It's, it's, it's the foreign mind ones will come here and look money and, and da, da, da. But the ones who are not materialistic and, and are really just deal with the nature, that's where you find them in Jamaica. When you go to Clarendon and these places in the countryside and stuff, and you just sit down and reason with some people. Sometimes I would like, I'll get up in the morning and go for a walk. I think I was in Mobay at that time. It was at Mobay, uh, Ochi. As in, and I got up to go for a walk and I just, I just see a Rasta man in a boat and two, two, we just start talking. I say, what's your name? He said, say, name King Shango. I say, all right, King Shango. My name General Levy. And we just start talking and we go to the boat and then get the herb and we go to the boat and we go right out. Me, him, and I was with a lady friend at that time. And we went out in the boat and reasoning and talking. And I don't even know the guy from Adams, you know, but he become my bonafide friend. And that's what I like about the Caribbean. The whole Caribbean is like that. But Jamaica particularly was really like a movie to me, you know what I mean? Jamaica and New York, Jamaica and America, because I've grown up with these two in my, in my face, in my ears a lot. So to go to these places was surreal. And you know what, to be honest with you, America was even more surreal for me, to hear taxi drivers. Hey man, I thought I'm in, I thought I'm in a movie here, man. This guy sounds like, it's so funny. He's like, I should have taped that. There was so much moments in Jamaica and America that I just like movie material. I love it, I loved it. Um, it sounds fascinating. And um, do you think there will come a time when you write another book or update the one that you have? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about um, updating it. I mean, I've, just, uh, I've left that quite a lot. Or I might just do a, a screenplay of this and add more into it. When, I, when, when the screenplay comes out, there will be extra bits, extra detail in it. I'm quite happy with the, with the detail in there. I think I've got like maybe 80, 80, 80 percent de good detail of my story because there's still little bits I missed out and little bits that uh but I'm still um but for my first attempt I'm really happy with it. I think I've got most of my um message across of my story. I know it's a bit confusing parts about that because I had to go on the radio recently and talk to Eddie Nesta and he was um a bit confused about the extended family bit. 
You know what I mean? Where did dad come from? How did that work? Because my mom got married to other gentlemen and dad still came with us. So no matter where we got, dad come with us. He was like, this old man, come with us. You know what I mean? And so I don't know. I don't, to, to us, that was cool. Dad was just like, you know, so there's bits of the book where people might say, wow, that's a bit, a bit of an extended family, strange family setting there. But that was how it was, you know. Um, dad was my guardian. So I'm really happy with the detail and, and explaining where I get the Jamaican side, why I'm so patois orientated as well, you know, um, explain especially about my, my, my biological father who wasn't really in my, I've seen my biological father two times. So it's good to, so people understand what, what, what made me the general I am, you know, so um, I'm happy with the book and I've got other things I would like to talk about as well in, in life. Like for instance, um, you know, the relationship between what the West has done to, to, to black people. I would like to talk about how the mm. influence of the West has influenced us for the good and the bad. You know, like for instance, um, the family setting. You know, the how they pushed the uh, the single mother, this independent thing, and now look what trouble we're in now. You know, um, let's let's say how you know it used to be king and queen. You know, what I mean, them days. You know, what I mean, I, I know that that pamper days was not as romantic as they explain it, but there was a certain unity back to back that we had. And where has that gone? And how the media has, has kind of dissolved us and the way that they've made us look in the media as gangsters, thugs, weed smoking, pimps, all that kind of the black, um, the way, what they call them, black, black exploitation days, how they used that to um, influence our people. So basically I would like to write a book. I'm thinking about how to, how to tackle it at the moment of how to explain get that out like for instance uh, at first it was um it had disco music and uh and then that kind of was disco was happy you know people go there but there was a lot of drugs around that scene as well and that disconnected us and then they came in with the soul music which was which was good we had a lot of soul music but then they came in with um there's nothing going on but the rent and that's where the argument start you gotta have a j-o-b and then they come in with I don't want no scrubs and and then the, the, the bugaboo bugaboo and I'll um and what's your name TLC and all this yeah TLC with them scrubs and all them tuning. I remember there was a moment when um particularly in my childhood in my teenage childhood when the, the week it changed for us and my crew but like we used to go to clubs and meet girls and it was to be easy to talk to really nice and polite there was nothing really you know too uh, conflicting it was quite easy to to, to strike up a conversation. But after certain music began to come out, things like TLC, The Scrubs, Destiny's Child with Bugaboo, Bugaboo. Girls used to use that on us in the clubs. I don't want no scrubs. Scrubs is a guy I can't get no. So that time, you could have been there two weeks ago on low budget. I still got through in a conversation with a girl. But after them tunes started to come out, your pocket was under pressure. It's like, if you're not spending no money on the club, if, not, if the champagne ain't flying around, you ain't, if you ain't got no big chain on, you ain't got this, you ain't got no car, you ain't getting no, no no love, you know? And it was a fascinating, I remember exactly when that changed, you know what I mean? Because we used to have, first we had the, 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 the Faith Evans, and then they came in with the Mary J. Blige, who was just like, she represented the, um, you know, the strong black woman. And I, I'm looking back still, Mary J. Blige was always sad, all sad songs still, but they had a good beat behind them still, you know what I mean? But she was talking something which she kind of got away with it. So I'm just saying, the way that they used certain music to, to, to influence us, you know, uh, to, to to change, to, to bring argument between black man and black woman, you know? 
because we used to have the love songs before, Luther Vandross and them thing there, and Marvin Gaye and them thing there. And that was everybody in love, you know, in the club. It brought a good energy. After, in about the early 90s, the energy changed in the clubs. It became very materialistic. What have you got? You've got to have a house, you've got to have that, you've got to have that. And 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 it came in, that started from um you know what I mean you gotta have a J O B and um Janet Jackson with um um she came with a song she came with a Janet Jackson the coming one as well you know she came with one that was like a uh, as well you know it was like so when you're hearing these songs in the clubs it was affecting the mood of a lot of you know people you know so so I'd like to explain and then you had Oprah Winfrey saying she's independent independent woman she she had no money to see her there. You know, there was no king next to her. There's some guy, what's his name? But he was always in the deep, deep Stedman. Stedman, yeah. But he was always like a man back there, you know. They pushed that kind of, in the, I don't need a man. And then they came with this thing in the UK where if you wasn't getting along with, with your with your partner, you could just make a phone call and they would get with, they would, they would give you a flat, benefits, everything. But you had to say, that's when you're pregnant. Because they even tried it on my first baby mother. They said, if she said that she didn't know who the guy was she got pregnant from, she doesn't know where he is, they said, okay, as long as you stick to that, we will give you a flat. And she stuck to that. And then they got a child support agency on me for seven years. They chased me down. Child nearly made me go mad. Every time I make a money, them take it. It was like really crazy. So that was really, I didn't put that in the book. Child support agency was nearly, nearly, nearly pushed me over the, the, the edge. Child support agent, horrible, horrible organization. No mercy. So that was the kind of stuff that brought friction between partners. Because that time, still I give my baby mother money. She's getting money in her. But... But but it's not the child support agency don't care. They want that that that. Even though you're even though you're giving her more than they're asking for, you, you ended up having to give her money because you need it whenever she needs it. Have it, and it's, and these people chasing you for seven years. So that was a horrible time as well. So these are the kind of things that what, what kind of push couples apart. You know, push relationships apart because often. When these people are chasing you, you think, I wonder if she's involved in it. I wonder if she's supporting them. I wonder if she, you know what I mean? Because she did in a nice house. I did it. And then, so it brought a lot of friction into situations. So I would like to write a book explaining how they they did, they how they neatly divide, used music and entertainment, this fug life thing, this Tupac business, this tug life, tug life. Tupac was an actor. He wasn't really a fug. He came from a good house. So I got to acting school. You went acting school, which you know, he's a posh you to go acting school. That ain't no real fog. Real fogs don't go acting school. So they use that in to, to come with this fog, thug life. So every woman wants a tug now. If, if you're in the two part, if you're not have tattoo and all them thing there, you know what I mean? It, it, it went that kind of direction. It really had to be a thug thing. I remember this girl said to me that she would give me a date when I do a thug video, when I got a video full of man. All right, when are you gonna do a, a, a thug video? You know what I mean? I said, I mean, I'm doing that, you know what I mean? Do my, you know what I mean? But it's like she, she had to see this image of thug, thuggery. And then now look at the, now look at the, now the results are in. Look at the kids, the, the boys walking around now. They've got two earrings in their ears. They, they, will, they will stab you for anything. And it's just a hot head thing. And these are the results. And I think that's because they've got the man, the black man out of the house. I mean, it takes two to grow a child, you know? And sometimes, the man would put down certain laws. It might seem strict, but in the long run, it, 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 he was right, you know, because he see things where sometimes the ladies, with, with respect, sometimes women will let things slide. You know what I mean? They'll let things slide sometimes. And, oh, I'll leave him with his two earrings. All right, if he's got his two. Oh, I'll leave him, let his, let, let his brief hang out. That's okay, it's all right. Man, put, pull up your trousers, boy. Pull up your pants. You're not going to the house with your pants, you know what I mean? And then, so they got rid of all of that. And this is what, these are the things what I would like to kind of, 
be able to break down neatly, but without being disrespectful to, to women or to, or to men. You know, just saying how the system, they've used uh, uh, the t television and the media to break up the, 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 the king and the queen element and the, the powerful black family, because they didn't do it to India. Indians are still there. Indians are still, they didn't come with no gangster Indian or a madman, and Chinese as well, still have their culture, still have everything blessed, but they trouble black people and use us to push this narrative. You know, and, and now and now everybody thinks that we're crazy and we're thugs and we smoke weed and just have loads of baby mothers. You know, and, and, and so when I went to China and Japan, um, I spoke to some people off the air and they think black people are a waste of time. Chinese people think that we should be exterminated. We're just a waste of time. We just want to have party and drink and smoke. That's the picture that they have of us. Because that's what's being painted and Hollywood and the media have done this. So I would like to explain to the kind of things why black people are, are in this spot that we're in now. We came into this Western, Western hemisphere and how we got um, blinded by the glitz and the glamour of the Western hemisphere and the results which have come out now. That sounds like an amazing project if you're able to get through with it. And you have to promise me that when you do publish that book, that you'll come back on the podcast and talk through those um, issues as well, because I think it is a necessary conversation for us to be having um, as well in terms of cleaning house and setting boundaries and how wayward our young people, some of our young people um, have become as a result. Yeah, I, uh, I wanted to move on a little bit because I don't want to expose too much um, from the book because I want people to go out and buy it. But there was one story that intrigued me, and yeah. that was your BBC One Extra video um, that I enjoyed all over again, and especially the high energy that was in the room. I would have loved to have been there. You should have looked me up and let me be there in the room. But please tell me, how did that come about? Because you weren't going on that particular show, were you? <laughs> you know what? A lot of people have kind of been interested in this, in this story. Uh, yeah, what it was, I went there to promote another song called Pull Up. I did a song with a producer called Sticky. The song was called Pull Up. Pull Up, Pull Up. We did a video for it and we were, we were about to launch a track. So we got an invite to one extra to talk about it. So we were sitting in the, in the foyer now, just sitting out chilling, waiting to see what's, when they're going to call us in. At that time, I'm starting to see all, all these guys I see on Channel U come through. I'm like, that's, what's his name? That, that's uh, Dizzy Rascal. That's um, Lethal B. Wow, that's, that's, that's Jammer. There's, um, that's, I'm going to know that one there. Oh, yeah, that one there, me. And then I mean, I'm like, okay, cool, man, you know, do your thing. And, and the men on this walk past, and one or two of them might give me a little yo, and you know, went, they went went into a certain studio, and they were getting on with their thing. I said, can I write? They're doing their thing in the room, go on in with their thing as they do. I'm saying, yeah, man, go on. And um, so I'm waiting for our, our people to call us to go in our studio now, where we're we going to. A lady come out of the same studio where the boys were and said, um, hey, General. You wanted, you wanted in, in that studio, in that room. What? Oh, I come to, all right then, cool. I just forget that, forget about, forget about, our plan was aborted straight away. I didn't even, I didn't even question it. She said, all right, let's go in there. So I went in, she, she brought me into the room. I stepped into the room, it's what, it's what everybody saw. And as I stepped into the room, Mr. Jam said, yo, General Levy, boom, put on something. And I went straight in and the rest is history. It was just like a total uh, off the cuff, not planned. I was going to go and talk about something else, but I think what we did in the end was better than what we, because um, I actually chatted pull up. I did chat pull up. The first track was pull up, pull up. So they did give me that 
that courtesy, I didn't get to sing my new song, but then it went into Incredible. But I didn't actually get to do the interviews that I thought I was going to do with the interview, but I ended up just freestyling with all these legends. With you, the young I'm ladies. telling you, I've got goosebumps from you telling that story. I really, really have, because it was absolutely amazing. And it, it's it's all about being ready, isn't it? And staying in the state of being ready so that when that call comes or that opportunity comes, you were just on it straight away, in control of it straight away. The thing is, I didn't want to go to the studio that day. I didn't want to go because I was on the mood like, what extra for the youth, them man, them and them grime and them and them to -to 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 business. What them, them child, make them go and do their thing. And, I, I, and, then, and my missus was like, go man, you have to go. You've been invited, go, go. I was like, boy, I mean, I'm really, I don't really want to go, you know. All right, sure. I'm going to go. And I was late. I was even, that's why I was a bit, a bit late, you know what I mean? So I didn't even want to go that day. My missus pushed me out the door. Uh, and, and I think my manager at the time pushed me out the door. So I said, yeah, let's go on the phone. Let's go. I said, all right, I went. So I didn't even really want to go. I didn't really care for it. I thought one extra, sure. It's not, it's not Radio 1. It's one extra. But one extra became massive. So it was, it was a good, I'm glad I went. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And the rest, as they say, is history. It's like you reached a whole new generation from just that one one clip. Listen, if you ever get these kind of invites and you're not sure sometimes, just go for it. Just go for it. Because, you know, you might think, oh, what do, what do they want with me? We have nothing to talk about. It's a different different frequency. But sometimes you'll go in there and the, the things, the, the, everything will just connect. Because I really did not plan that day. And that's, that's one, of one of the biggest days of my career. And my missus had to push me out the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, and, and, and that's the other thing that I've learned from reading the book is that you change the frequency just by walking in the room, you change the energy. You could actually, even watching it on YouTube, you could see the rays of energy that came in with you, ball of energy that came in with you. I can watch that clip over and over and over again. It was that fantastic. It was that good. We've almost come to the end of our interview and I'm going to be cheeking. I saw a clip of you singing Incredible to a an Uber driver. Uh, not uh, that yeah. long ago. Do you know yeah. what the clip I'm talking about? Of course, of course, of course. Your episode is episode 10, and it is the season finale, so I'm ending with you. And I was wondering whether you could do a remix of Incredible, just a, just a, a few seconds, but with me as your podcast um, host. So instead of the Uber driver, it will be Pamela R. Haynes. Incredible Pamela, said the selectly, the number one presenter. Pamela, ain't just spin them like a windmill. Another interview, go tell them is you got the skill. The show won't be nice unless your name's on the bill. For when you do interviews, people's dreams get fulfilled. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm sure you could go on, but thank you so much for spending this time with me because I know that your time is very precious. So I wish you all the best for the future. I've got my eye on you. I'm going to continue following you on social media. And I hope that our paths cross again at some point in the future. But for now, thank you very much, General Leaving. Can you tell I was dancing in my seat at the end there? General Levy certainly brings the energy and sends out good vibes. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. It is competition time now. To win a copy of his book entitled Incredible, simply answer the following question. At the time of the interview, General Levy had just returned from which country? 
A. Belize, B. Brazil, or C. Barbados? Contact me on Instagram or Facebook with the correct answer by this Friday. Good luck. Have you missed an episode of the podcast or do you want to listen to the show again? I got you. The podcast is available on your favourite listening platforms including Deezer, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, YouTube and Amazon Music and so many more. Follow me on Instagram at LovingTheAuthor to find out who I will be interviewing for Season 6. Have an amazing summer and I look forward to your company in September. Bye for now.